carpe diem, seize the day. If you weren't alive in the 80s and that movie wasn't part of your upbringing, then let me translate what that means for you. YOLO. You only live once, right? That's what he's saying in in this movie, The Dead Poet Society, that um, we need to seize the day. We need to make the most of today because you only live once. We're going to be pushing up daisies at some point in the future. So make the most of today. And at its heart, this is kind of the motto that so much of our culture lives by, isn't it? So much of what we, we, we think about. All there is is what you see and feel and experience and touch now. So live, love and learn. Enjoy life. Enjoy the day. Seize the day. YOLO. The day that we care about is usually today. In that idea of seizing the day, it's making the most of this day. You only live once, so do something exciting today because tomorrow you could be dead. The whole idea of it is about making the most of today, caring about today, living for today. One of the things that I love about the Bible is every time we open up God's Word, we're confronted with a clash of values, a view of the world that provides great encouragement, but at the same time, a view of the world that disturbs us, that shocks us, that shakes the way we view things up, that turns our world upside down and makes us think if what we originally thought of what we think and and feel and breathe from the world around us is actually the way things are. And today, tonight, as we've heard God's word read to us, it is no different. God's word holds out to you a very different picture from the carpe diems and yolos that we live amongst all day. While everything about our natural worldview says to live for today, God put in front of you tonight another day, a different day. Have a look at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1. About the times and seasons, brothers... You don't need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come. Throughout the whole Bible, there's this behind-the-scenes expectation and focus on a day. The day of the Lord is what it's called, or the day of Yahweh. That's, that's God's name for himself, the day of God. It's described throughout the Bible, really, as the day God comes to town. The day God will set things straight, put right what has been wronged. If we're going to understand the Bible in a deep way, if any of us are going to understand what God has to say to us, we need to understand how the Old Testament, the things written before Jesus, expand our picture of the New Testament. For the Old Testament is the background, the shadow that is pointing forward to who Jesus is and what he's done and what the writers of the New Testament have to say. And as we read... um, The New Testament, we say the New Testament helps us to understand the old. It interprets what happened before and shows us their full meaning now. So if you want to grow deeper in God's word, you need to know what has been said in the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in the New and how the New Testament understands the old. So why don't you come with me on a quick tour throughout the Bible of understanding what is this day of the Lord? We'll start in Isaiah chapter 13. They're on the screen, so you don't need to flick too fast, but write them down if you want. Isaiah 13, verse 9. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with rage and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy the sinners on it. 
Is that what you expected? Is that what you, you expected God to say about this day of the Lord? Have a look at Zephaniah 1 verse 2. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away man and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hands against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I'll cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priests, along with the priests, those who bow, bow in worship on the rooftops to the heavenly hosts, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent, says Zephaniah, in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. It's a vast picture of God's judgment coming on the world, of God setting things right. Listen to the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the horn in Zion, set the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it's near. The day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is this day that God would finally bring justice. He'll bring justice to the nations. He will put things right. He will wrong. He will right the wrongs that have been committed throughout our world. In some ways, there's, there's two sides to this news of the day of the Lord. There's both good news and bad news. The good news is that well, so often, justice doesn't happen. We live in a world, right, where, where justice doesn't always prevail, where, where wrong goes by unnoticed. When we get angry, we get outraged about the way things have gone on because it's just not fair. It's just not right. Have you ever found yourself in that position? Just so angry that justice hasn't been delivered. The guilty go unpunished. They, they seem to get away with it. Have you ever been wronged? This day, the day of the Lord, God will bring justice. Justice will come and it will be the hand of the almighty creator of the universe that will deliver that justice. Far greater justice than you or I could imagine God will bring. And that is the day that's on view throughout the Old Testament. See, because justice is part of God's character. It's just part of who he is. He, he doesn't show favoritism. He's not impressed with a kind of shallow external display. He, he hates hypocrisy. He hates the superficiality that so often people put on. Justice will prevail when that day comes. It's good news in some ways. But on the other hand, it's, it's bad news. It's actually pretty scary news. Who of us in this room can say we've never been hypocritical? Who of us can say that we've never wronged another person? that we've never been on the delivering end of injustice. I oh, know I can't say that. I've, I have. I have been hypocritical. I have wronged others. And the scary thing about this day is that the creator of the universe is coming to right the wrongs, to deliver his justice, and I'm going to be on the receiving end of that justice. It's a scary thought to have the creator of the universe pour out his anger on us and deliver his justice for all that we've done wrong. 
for those times we've ignored him. We've pretended that we call the shots in life, that we know what's right and we've set the rules and we'd like to live according to the way that I'd like to live rather than treating him as the true and living God, as the one who sustains me and upholds me. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day we need to grapple with. But there's more to this day than just the aspect of God's judgment. God's judgment is front and center, don't get me wrong. But the New Testament sheds more light on this idea of of the day of the Lord. There's a clarity about it, a change the New Testament brings. In Philippians 1.6 and 1 Corinthians 1.18, check them out later if you want, Philippians 1.6, 1 Corinthians 1.18, they both speak of the day of the Lord as the day of the Lord Jesus. They apply this day of the Lord, this judgment of God to the day Jesus returns, the day Jesus comes back. See, he's the one that will bring in God's judgment. He's the one that will bring in God's wrath. Now, how does that bring clarity for us? Well, firstly, it tells us this thing very, very clearly. Jesus is God. You can't mistake that. To apply the day of the Lord and say to the day of the Lord Jesus is to equate Jesus with God. You can't hold it. He isn't God. Jesus comes with the full judgment of God. He's the one who brings God's judgment. But secondly, in Jesus, there's great hope. There's great hope. A promise of a way out from that wrath and judgment that we deserve. A a certain hope, a secure hope. You know, it's very different to the way we use the word hope today. I went to McDonald's um, just on Friday. Uh, once a month, I take each of our kids out for one-on-one time with Dad. And it was Nathaniel's turn uh, last Friday. Every Friday, we do it with our four kids. Uh, it's one, one at a time. And um, so this Friday was, was Nathaniel's go. And we went out to uh, McDonald's. He was keen to go to McDonald's. Uh, so we went to McDonald's, sat down, and he's gone, oh, I've never had a McFlurry. What's a McFlurry? So we got this McFlurry ice cream, sat down. It was great. We were kind of chatting about stuff. And he noticed that on, on the back, there's these Monopoly pull-off pieces, right? You would have seen them. Uh, it's about you can win all this stuff. He's like, what are these? I'm like, oh, you can win cool stuff like a motorbike. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, you can. I'm, it's probably not very likely. But anyway, so we, we pull one off and, and it comes out as it's Mayfair. Now, there's only one other. You know, if you're a Monopoly player, Park Lane's the only one. Like we've got 50% of all we need to win a $28,000 motorcycle. And he's like, this is cool. Should we look at the other ones? And Nathaniel's looking around, looking and see if he can peel other people's off. He's like, we might find Park Lane somewhere else. He's like, I hope we do because then we'll get a motorbike. It's a very different type of hope. That's a wishful thinking type of hope because McDonald's only prints like four of them. They only got four bikes to give away. Out of all the people in New Zealand, there's only four around it. Probably some person's already thrown half of them out because they haven't even peeled them off because they're like, this is ridiculous. Now, it's a very different type of hope that, that Jesus brings. It's a hope that's grounded in history. Have a look at one, chapter 5 of Thessalonians, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. The day of the Lord is the day that Jesus returns to judge, but the one who judges is the one who's died in your place. Is the one who's 
absorb the wrath of God for you, with you in mind. When Jesus died on that cross, which he, he said he would do, the, the apostles, his followers said he, he did, the early church reported that he, that he died and rose again. When he did that, he did that to take the penalty for what we have done, to face God's wrath, his judgment for us so that we need not face it. That's the hope we have. It's not grounded in wishful thinking that I hope I might get the Park Lane piece from McDonald's. Maybe it's a certainty. He's already done it. It's already been offered. Jesus said it. His apostles said it. The early church said it. Now, if that's news for you tonight, I'd love you to think through the certain hope that's on offer for you. You'd be crazy to walk away and just go, after oh, a load of junk without checking it out. Come and chat more with us. Have a look at the Bible. Explore this hope because its claim is phenomenal. There is a day of judgment. And Jesus will bring it in. And that same Jesus who will bring in that day of judgment on you has died in your place so that you might have life. That's phenomenal news. Even if you have heard that news before, we need to stop and remember how amazing this is. Do you forget, like me? Do you forget that the one who spoke and the universe was created, the one who spoke creation into being, the one for whom and through whom and by whom all things were created, the one who sustains all things, willingly left his father's side and became part of his creation, subjected himself to humanity who scorned him, who mocked him. Have you thought that the, the, the moment Jesus' hands were being nailed to that cross The only reason that could happen was because Jesus sustained the heartbeat and the breath of the very person who was nailing him to that tree. Why did he do it? Because he loves us. Is there any other religion or worldview that has at its heart such an act where the one who made us so desires for us to be in right relationship with him that he goes to that length for you? He's both just and merciful, true and loving. He did it with you in mind. See, that news, the thing that Jesus did on that cross, that's why we exist as a church. That's why we come out on Sunday nights here at Uni Church on Auckland Uni Campus, because we want to see as many people as possible understand that news, don't we? We want to see people understand that they don't have to face God on the day of judgment, just standing on their own two feet, that they can stand in Jesus, that Jesus has died in their place. We want to see as many people as possible know that. That's why we as a church, we don't want to become complacent and be like, yeah, yeah, we just come together on Sundays like some social club. No. Eternity. The eternity of those who live in this city depends on on people's response to Jesus. And you and I have that news and that message. As a church, it's our responsibility to remind one another of that truth, to not forget it, to not become complacent in it, to keep growing in it. And to tell those around us, those we love, our family, our friends, our colleagues, that Jesus died for them. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. That's what makes life worth living. 
We must never be satisfied with our growth in maturity or our growth in numbers as a church. Until Jesus comes back, we want as many as possible knowing him. Don't we? Isn't that what you want to be part of? That's why we as a church need to keep planting churches. To keep seeing new places that are holding out the truth of Jesus start up. Uh, in other cities, in this city. Do you know if you wanted to see just 10% of Auckland in great Bible teaching and training churches, just 10%, we'd need 750 churches of 200 or 200 churches of 750. And that's just 10%. There's lots of work to be done. We need to be thinking how, how we can keep sharing this news, inviting people in, training people up. Because Jesus has died in your place. And he's rescued us from the coming wrath of God. And that news is available for all people. And we have a great responsibility, don't we? It's like we're at the scene of the Titanic. And we're on a lifeboat called Jesus. And everyone around us is swimming, going, I love cold water. We need to say, get out. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. The day of the Lord is coming. In the Old Testament, God has showed us clearly what it is. The New Testament has applied that day to Jesus' return and hold, held out that hope we have in Jesus. So the obvious question for us is, well, when's it coming? <laughs> right? You're kind of like, well, when will this happen? When, when will Jesus return? And now, as you look through the ages, so many people have predicted this. Some people give their life to predicting when Jesus will come back. Um, there have been, even from AD 66, uh, the Essenes and Simon Bar-Giora, he predicted it happening before AD 70. Wrong. Ah, try again. <laughs> the Jehovah's Witness Church have had a long history of, pre- of predicting when Jesus would come back. Uh, nine times they've predicted he'd come. There you go, just in case you're worried that I can't count to nine. Uh, 19, uh, 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, 1984. They're all dates that they said, Jesus is definitely coming back. Wrong, didn't happen. It's kind of become a little bit laughable. Uh, this morning, um, after I preached this at Morning Church, someone sent me this picture. I kid you not, this is in Auckland. Look at this. Jesus rapture, 14th of September, that's tomorrow. Ralph Rome YouTube, I looked him up uh, and the guy's got like 24 videos of him reading text on a video screen about how he knows mathematically that Jesus will return somewhere between the 13th and the 15th of September. Friends, this guy is claiming, uh, this is in Auckland, Michael Jeff sent me this photo this morning, okay? Maybe he wrote it, I don't know, the guy's a little bit crazy sometimes. <laughs> I, nearly, I nearly photoshopped in his name at the bottom just for a joke, but anyway. Someone thinks that the world is ending tomorrow. That's it. And you kind of, we sit here and we laugh and we go, this is so stupid. So many predictions, hundreds upon hundreds over time. Do you know, people actually spend their lives, you can get rid of this, it's not true. Um, People spend their lives trying to work out when this stuff happens. Do you know there's such a, a thing called a rapture index? Has anyone ever heard of that? Unless you're at church this morning, no? Anyone heard of a rapture index? Oh man, let me tell you some exciting stuff. You can go home tonight, look up on the internet a rapture index. And what the rapture index does, it looks at all the kind of biblical predictions of when the apocalypse, the end time, the rapture will happen. 
It kind of says these things will happen, and it kind of grades them all in this big chart. And then you can map each year of how many of those events happen, and it gives you like a return. For this year, it's looking like the rapture index is high probability or low probability. You can work this stuff out. People have spent hours making an online calculator for you. Don't waste your life. Uh, They call it the Dow Jones Industrial Average of End-Time Activity. Seriously, that's what they say on their website. And another little line underneath it says, the prophetic speedometer of end-time activity. You can know where we're at. Look at your dial, get your dashboard. People spend their lives on this stuff. But it kind of got me thinking. I so often laugh at these people, right? And go, as if you do that. But I think somewhere in the mix... I've forgotten that Jesus is coming back. Why aren't you and I wondering when he's going to come back? Have you kind of been sucking in the world around us that says, oh, just live for today. That's not going to come. Have you, like me, got up every day for my last 34 years, going, well, each day I get up, the sun rises, the sun sets. I think that's going to do the same tomorrow. I'm pretty sure. And because of that, you don't expect Jesus to be coming back. You don't expect the day of the Lord to be coming. My question is, why aren't you wondering? Have you forgotten that this is real? That the day of the Lord is coming? Have you, like me, just slightly assimilated with the world around me? Become like those people who say peace and security, you know, stuff will keep going on, invest for the long term, sit back, enjoy life. I've let the truth of Jesus, that reality that Jesus does say, no one knows the day or the hour. He says that in Matthew 24, if you want to look it up. Uh, some people go, oh, that means we can still pick the day. <laughs> uh, no, the, the day or the hour. Is it the hour or the... Anyways, we can, we can, they can still pick the month or something. You kind of, you get out of it in some pharisaical way. Um, but he, we've let the reality of Jesus saying that think that, well, we don't need to be ready. We've let it dull the reality that Jesus and the rest of the Bible says so clearly that day is coming. Have you done that like me? Have you kind of switched off that it could be tonight? It could be tomorrow. Have you moved on to living the seize the day YOLO life? Living it up for now. Become just like the world around me. Forgetting that historical fact that Jesus did die And he rose again and said, I'm coming back. Well, that time, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, will come. Have a look at verse 2. He says, that time will be unexpected. Verse 2, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security... Then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The day is coming, but you can't predict it. It's going to be unexpected. You can't predict when a thief is going to come. No one rings up 0800 book a thief and says, hey, next Thursday, can you come around and rob my house? Just put it in the calendar and I'll have everything ready. You know, the whole point of a thief coming is that, that you don't know. Otherwise, you'd be like, get lost, you idiot. There's police here. I knew you were coming. You know, go to jail. No, the whole way thieving works is by like sneakiness of people not expecting it to happen. You get up one morning and your car's gone and you're like, damn, I knew I shouldn't have gone to sleep last night. 
the day of the Lord will be coming, but it will be unexpected. Jesus says no one can know the day or the hour. It's kind of like labor pains. That's, that's part of the image here as well. I don't know if you've ever been uh, with someone who's in labor giving birth, but uh, labor pains, you don't really know when they're going to happen. We've had four kids. None of them have come on time. I'm like, how much do doctors get paid and they can't even pick the day my child's going to come? Like, you think that's a pretty normal thing to be able to predict, wouldn't you? Like, lots of kids are born. We were all born. Everyone who's alive has been born. Can't you just work out the stats and go, where is it? None of our kids were right. They were all like, all over the shop. It's unexpected. You can't actually pick the day that it will happen. But the second thing that's on view here is that the day of the Lord will be inescapable. It'll be inescapable. And here's where the labor pains on a pregnant woman really come in to show. Well, you can't pick the time. Labor is inescapable. I remember um, Sarah was in labor with our third child, Lara. Uh, at that point, I was trying to convince Sarah that we should stop at three. She wasn't so sure. She's in the middle of labor pains. And I go, hey, Sarah, how about we stop kids now? Like, we, we agree right now. She's like, shut up. No. I'm like, I'm like, what a great time to ask. She's in the middle of kind of labor pains. It's killing her. I'm like, why not just ask now? And she'll be like, yeah, no more. Um, but, but imagine at that moment, I said, all right, you know what? I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit nervous about this kid thing. Like, we've already got two, one more. They're going to outnumber us. What, what are we going to do with the third one? Who's going to look after it? I've got one. You've got the other. What's going to happen with the third one, right? And so I said, all right, why don't we just, why don't, I, I know you're in the middle of labor, but let's just, just shut your legs and we'll go home and think about it for a month. You can't do that. That kid's coming out whether you like it or not. One way or another, there's a baby coming out. Like, it's there. You're in labor. It's, it's inescapable. So it is with the day of the Lord. You might not know exactly when it's going to happen, but when it comes, it is inescapable. No one will miss it. Jesus will come back. And the third thing we see is that this day of the Lord brings division. It brings division. Have a look at verse 4. But you, brothers, are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, this is not the Christian proof text verse to say I can do all nighters and be godly. Right? It's not saying, you know, um, uh, for your sons of the light, we don't belong, so we must not sleep. Yeah, here we go. I must do all-nighters. That's what the Bible says. That's how you don't read the Bible. Right? It's not what it's saying. It's saying there's a great division that the day of the Lord will bring. There's a division between those who live in the light and those who live in the dark. And that division will be forever. To live in the light is to live for that day. The day that Jesus comes back, knowing that he's coming, trusting that the one who is coming will deliver us from the coming wrath because he's died in our place. To live in the dark is to kind of YOLO. It's the carpe diem way of living. Live for the day. Don't worry about the return of Jesus. Live for now. You know, because you only live once, so enjoy life. Get the most out of today. Live it up. The moment you think the day of the Lord will never dawn is the moment you step into the dark. And you live in the deeds of darkness. You live in a way that isn't expecting God's return, that isn't expecting that the day of 
of judgment will come and shed light on our lives. Show where, how we've lived, how we've rebelled against God. Everything we've ever thought, said, done, spoken will all be shown. We think that isn't going to come and so we just live it up. Live our way. But Paul's saying those who live for the light, who live in the light, are living for that day. See, the day of the Lord will bring all deeds to light. And to live in that kind of darkness is, is to kind of like scurry around the kitchen like a cockroach. I don't know if you have cockroaches in your flat or wherever you're living. I'm Australian. We have big cockroaches in Australia uh, and lots of them. I remember going to a friend's place once. He was moving and they moved like the, their kind of TV unit. And I kid you not, it was brown. But the TV unit like it was on wasn't brown. It was kind of cream. It was brown because they was full of cockroaches. And they just all started moving and going off the edges like, like a flow of lemmings. Anyway... It was disgusting. But those cockroaches, you know what they're doing? They're like, this is dark under this TV. It's dark and warm and I love it. I don't, there's no light coming. I'm just going to live here. I'm going to eat all the crumbs. I'm going to go around the kitchen. And I'm like, look at this awesome bit of like leftover egg they didn't clean up last night. I'm going to eat that up. This is great. I love egg. You know, it's into egg. Egg is awesome. And I think, I'm just going to sit here and scoffing ourselves, filling ourselves up to be fat as cockroaches until one day Jesus returns and turns on the light. And the cockroaches try and scurry, but they're so fat, they're on their backs going, eh. I hope that's a helpful picture for you. Because that's what we do, isn't it? We love the things of the world our way. We live like the world around us, uh, looking at its pleasures, and we think they're good because we're hiding in the dark and the, the light. God's word and God himself has not shown them for what they are. We think light is bad, but no. The creator and the sustainer of the universe has told us how we should live. He's told us his son is coming back. Jesus has died in our place and he says, make me your king. Live in the light. Stop worrying about that stuff that you're so concerned about, that career, that um, relationship, that car, that whatever it is. And live for the day when the lights turn on and our lives are shown for what they really are. On that day, there's only one place I want to be standing. And that's in Jesus. The one who has died in my place and has taken the penalty for what I deserve. Paul says, if you trust in Jesus, this is not you. You, don't, you are not living in the dark. You don't belong to the dark. You belong to the light. Paul says, so live this way. Look, look at verse 9. For God did not appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is no kind of philosophical idea. This is the rest of eternity for you. Will you be in the dark or in the light? So Paul tells this little church in Thessalonica, wake up. Stay awake. Be prepared for the reality that Jesus' return is imminent. Don't go to sleep. Don't scurry off to the dark. Stay awake. Look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious or sober-minded and put on the armor of faith and the love on our chests and put on a helmet of hope of salvation. Life, this side of Jesus' return, right? it's not like... The labor ward waiting room. Now, I imagine not many of you have been in the labor ward waiting room. 
Right? It's when you know someone, usually wife or family member, is 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 giving birth in 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 the actual kind of room, and you're just outside drinking tea, going, "Oh yeah, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for the day that this son comes or this child comes. Everything's good." That's not the Christian life. That's not living in the light. Living in the light is jumping in the labor room with God the Son to see the news of this child called Jesus who's been born and died for us spread across the world. It's partnering with Him. It's letting Him rule our lives. It's an active thing that we're called to do. So Paul says, be awake. Stay awake. Be serious. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Stop flirting around with life. Stop chasing after things that are going to pull your attention away from who Jesus is and what he's done. He's not saying that you can't enjoy life, right? God has made many good things for us to enjoy. It's work, relationships, family, holidays, time off, hobbies, relationships, art, music, all sorts of stuff God has made for us to enjoy. It's part of his creation. Just don't get engrossed in them. Egg is good. Don't gorge yourself on it all the time thinking that's all there is, right? Life is good. But if you live for today only, if you try and seize the day and live the YOLO life, life to the full right now, to what you think is full, you'll be so engrossed in what's right in front of your face that you'll miss the day of the Lord. Paul says, wake up. Don't have that view. Don't so order your life that that's the way that you're going. See, we're not just on a lifeboat as Christians at the scene of the Titanic. We're on a battleship. See, we're at war. Satan is prowling around, Peter tells us, like, like a lion ready to devour with his lies. He's throwing out lies all the time. Live for life, live for sex, live for relationships and career and possessions and position. And we forget that we're on a battleship, we're at war. We forget that, you know what, the war's already been won. Death has been defeated, Satan has been put away, he's just kind of being dragged out through time, kicking and screaming, it's already been finished, but we still listen. Now imagine on a battleship, if, if you're at war, there's time on a battleship for fun. There's time for rest, for kind of sitting back and having a bit of a, of a break and mucking around with the people on the ship. But the moment you forget you're at war... It's the moment you miss the torpedo and the whole ship sinks, isn't it? It's the moment you miss the enemy coming in and one of your mates takes bullets and dies. So stay awake, says Paul. Put on the armor of faith and love on our chests. What he's saying is if you trust Jesus, then you are so bound to him that his death was your death. That he's paid the price for turning our backs on God. That we are in him and we are forgiven Faith is like an armor. It protects us. You can't shoot me because Jesus died in my place. And this kind of armor of love is the way we're to express that. To live not just as arrogant pricks who think we're saved, but as people who trust in Jesus who saved us and we want others to come to know him. And so we love and care for one another and the world around us. And then he says, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, I don't know how many of you um, kind of have, have daily encounters with helmets. If you're a scooter rider, I hope you do. Uh, maybe if you're a skateboard rider, you, you might have worn a helmet for a bit or a boxer. You know, sometimes they wear those, I don't know what you call those, head, headgear sets. But helmets are really, really valuable. Now, I grew up on a, a kind of a small mini farm thing and from a young age had a motorbike, right? 
And um, in the 80s, the kind of cool helmet to have was one like Fonzie from Happy Days, the kind of open face one, had nothing at the front, and you could ride around on dirt bikes. It was great. And my parents had two rules for riding motorbikes. Um, You must always wear long pants, uh, snakes and falling off hurts. So wear long pants, you don't get kind of killed. Um, And secondly, always wear a helmet. And so that was kind of, um, I I thought, yeah, I I should do this. It's an important thing. But I was a pretty good motorbike rider, right? I, I'd gr- I was four when I first started riding. I've been riding my whole life. I used to, at one point, um, there's this certain track around the top of our, of our paddock, and um, I used to think that I knew it so well I could ride it with my eyes shut, and so I'd try that. I'd try to show my eyes and thinking where I was, and you get about halfway around, and you're like, no, I've got to open, I'm going to hit something. Um, and you know, I was good at this stuff. I'm like, I don't really think I'm going to need a helmet. Uh, and then one day, um, my parents gave me for, for Christmas uh, this kind of brand new full face helmet. I was pretty excited about it. It was red. It was kind of bright. I'm like, that's cool. It looked like a, a racing kind of helmet. It was full around and had this big Nolan written across the top. And I, I really liked it, but I still didn't think I'd need it. Anyway, so about that month, my dad and I were kind of going for a ride together. He had a bike, I had a bike. And we we're going on this long stretch with four paddocks. And we all had the, the gates open of all of them to see how fast we could go. It's what you do when you got nothing else to do, and there's kind of acreage around, and you've got a bike. So I'm going as fast as I possibly can. Dad's going behind me on another bike, seeing how fast I was going. I was doing 60 k's an hour. I went through the gate, and it, for the front, just kind of locked down through a bump and just flicked me straight over. And I remember flying through the air and landing flat on my face. And at 60 k's an hour, just kind of going, scraping along the dirt. Now, if I was wearing the Fonzie helmet, the kind of, the, the kind of open face thing, I'd look very different today. I kind of have a very, very flat nose. I don't even, it'd be, it, it would have been pretty, pretty bad. But because I had this helmet on, the crash that I experienced really didn't affect me at all. I took my helmet off and there's this massive, big kind of round kind of scar on the front of the helmet through the Nolan branding where my, my helmet had just gone along the ground. Paul says, the hope of salvation is our helmet. Life it might go drastically wrong and you might find yourself face down on the road getting rubbed along, going 60 k's an hour, going, man, I think I'm dead. But you know what? If you are in Jesus, then when he returns, you will rise. No one can take eternal life from you because you have the helmet of the hope of salvation if you trust in Jesus. Paul says in verse 11, Therefore encourage one another. Build each other up as you're already doing. I need you. You need each other to keep reminding each other that this is what's really going on, that we are at war, that the day of the Lord is coming, not to live for the things that we so desire now, but to let God's light shine, to live as people in the light. We need each other. We need to encourage one another and build one another up to keep reminding each other that the day is coming. Last week, we talked about the the hope we have in the gospel, the certainty of that. And this week, Paul's putting before us, are you ready? Are you ready? For the day of the Lord is coming. Are you living in the light? Have you armored up? Are you trusting Jesus? He's saying, get in the game. This is what it's about. This is what life is about, is is making sure that we're trusting Jesus to the end, that we're living in the light, that we're serving him. Are you in the game? 
Are you focused on what matters most, on where you'll be spending the next 10 billion years, on the day of judgment coming back and your only hope being in Jesus? Is that what you're living for? We need to be get, getting serious. We need to be in God's Word, to let God's Word keep shaping and molding us. Do you know, we send out emails at church uh, called soap emails. They go out five times a week. And in them, it's a small passages of the Bible to kind of keep reminding us of who God is and what He's done for us. If you're struggling with your quiet times, if you're struggling to get into God's Word, then write down on your Connect card tonight, please send me soap emails. Almost everyone checks their emails. There's a way you can read God's Word to pray about it and to let it keep soaking over you with some instructions as to how to kind of keep letting God's Word change you. Get in the game. Get God's Word in our faces. Remember what matters. If, you, if you're on top of your quiet times and that's kind of going well, but maybe you're not praying, you're not speaking with God, you're not bringing to the, the Creator and Sustainer of all things the, the needs that we have and speaking with Him, then again, I want to say, Think through how you can be praying more regularly. We send out prayer points daily as a church. Uh, they can come to your email too. If that's something that you'd like, write down prayer points on your Connect card and we'll send them to you for free. <laughs> but a way to kind of keep thinking about godly, biblically driven, theologically centered prayers about who Jesus is, what he's done, helping me to put him first in life. The creator of the universe wants you to ask him to help. Yet I don't. Get in the game. Or thirdly, if you're not in one of our connect groups, if you're not in a small group of people where you're kind of meeting one-on-one, sorry, uh, with one another, I don't know how you can keep living as a Christian. We're not built to be solo Christians. Encourage one another, Paul is saying. This is so important. Jesus is coming back. It will happen. And you've got to be ready for this. You've got to be living in the light. I need people around me to say, hey, how are you going? How are you going in your quiet times? How are you going in sexual purity? How are you going in putting Jesus first, in serving your wife, in, in loving others? It's pretty rare that people ask me those questions. I, I need them. I don't know if you're finding that with one another that you're getting asked, how are you going really? If you're not, start asking. For eternity is at stake. Commit to going to a small group and, and stick to one group. Stick to a group where you can be amongst these people and you can know them. You can, you can know one another. The person that chops and changes groups all the time because they've got friends over here, friends over there, you never actually connect. Do you see how important this is? No army platoon uh, kind of changes members every five weeks. They stick together. They know one another because they're at war. There's something going on that's big. Paul says, get in the game. Stay awake. I want to ask you one more question. I want you to imagine for a moment that in three years' time, Jesus really was returning. I'm not talking about I've seen the rapture index and I've counted all this stuff or whatever. Imagine, okay? I'm not saying this is the case. This is no prediction. I don't have some crazy YouTube video. But, but just imagine for a second that in three years from now, Jesus was returning. Imagine you knew that for sure. You knew he was coming back, that, that all your deeds would be brought to light, that the final day would be here and your only hope was Jesus. Let me, let me ask you this. Would that change the way you live tomorrow? 
Will that change what you live for, what, what things you're engrossed in? Friends, Jesus could return tonight. And Paul says, live in the light. Are there things in your life now that you're potentially a little too engrossed in? Good things maybe, but things you need to cut back on or cut out. Maybe we should go on a fast. Maybe we should actually think about saying there's these things, maybe good things, things like movies or TV, Facebook, renovating your house, kind of little projects we might have that we find ourselves getting overly engrossed in. I don't know what they are for you, but maybe we should just say just for one month, I'm not going to do that. Not that I have to. There's nothing super spiritual about it. It doesn't make me more connected with God. It doesn't make God more happy with me. It's just doing one thing. It's saying, every time I think about doing that thing that I could potentially be a little bit more engrossed in, I'm going to remember that Jesus could come back tomorrow. I'm going to let that shape the way I think about my decisions and my actions and what I do next and what I live for. Maybe that's one way that you could start saying, I want to make sure I'm living in the light. Paul says the day of the Lord is coming. Are you ready? Are you in the game? Are you ready to share that news with this city and to see more and more people come to know this Jesus and live forever? I am. Won't you join me? Let's pray. Father God, tonight... We sit here in some ways, I guess, with a sense of fear. With the reality that that the day you bring all deeds to light is coming. Lord, we, we sit here recognizing that none of us have lived a way that is shameless. And all of us have wronged others. And that for every single person in this room, we deserve your judgment. And that judgment is death and then hell forever. Father, it's when we reflect on how great that judgment is, on what we deserve, that we are so overawed that Jesus has faced it for us. That he's died in our place and taken the penalty that we deserve so that we might stand forgiven and we might be able to know you and look forward to life with you forever. Father, we confess that is such a different view of the world than we so often hold. We so often live for the now, for the things that will supposedly satisfy us today. But Lord, we ask that tonight. We might go away from having heard you speak in your word, seeing you very, very clearly. Seeing that the day that matters is the day of Jesus' return. And we ask that in light of that day, we might walk trusting in him, serving him with our all. Lord, we ask that you would work through us to see one another standing in Jesus, built up and encouraged to see our friends coming to know him. Lord, we long that for this city and this country, you would bring many, many thousands of people to trust in your son. And we pray tonight, Lord, for those of us that are here contemplating whether you are worth following. We ask, Lord, that you would show us what you've done for us in Jesus. That we would see the certain hope that is held out. And we put our lives in your hands. 
Father, we give ourselves to you, for we belong to the day that Jesus returns. So we pray, use us. Amen.